song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I am David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains the world. We are going to be talking about the fall of WCW this week. We're not going to be getting too in-depth into the individual aspects of what happened to WCW, in part because everybody's done it. Also, there's a really, really great book called The Death of WCW by Brian Alvarez and R.D. Reynolds of WrestleCrap. It it goes a lot more in-depth than we ever could in an hour and a half, two hours, four hours. And it really breaks down what happened, how it happened, why it happened, what was actually happening statistically, like what their numbers were doing. And there's no reason to like retread any of that. And there's also a less good documentary, which is, I believe, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, uh, the rise and fall of WCW, which is like their brand for uh, that. They couldn't call it the self-destruction of WCW, but I think that's basically what they wanted to call it. Yeah, they had already done Rise and Fall of ECW as well. And that DVD had done really, really well. I think that was like one of the best sellers they ever did when DVDs were big. But yeah, they, so they went with Rise and Fall of WCW to, to make it kind of a sequel to the successful ECW documentary, I think. Yeah, and it's not so much a documentary as a haha, we won, haha, we won. Because I don't think they're totally fair to a lot of things that happen in WCW. But I do think... And some people uh, disagree with me. Some people are saying that they disagree with me. Uh, I feel like the actual beginning of the downfall of WCW was the finger poke of doom. Not because it like broke kayfabe or whatever, but it showed the level to which they did not give a shit. And I think that's what ultimately hurt them worse than anything else is that they made it very clear that it was a bunch of dudes in the back just having a good time trying to get over on the fans. You know what, Nick? I actually just watched that episode of Nitro from uh, January of 99. I think it was January 4. I think it was the first Nitro of the year in 99 when the finger poop of doom happened. So I actually have some kind of uh, have fresh reactions having just revisited that. The following announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. But first, uh, I want to zero in on a glaring omission that you made at the top of the show, sir. And that is that you did not say uh, that this was an exciting topic. So I am offended because this is the most excited I've been for a show in a while. And you know why? Why is that? Because I'm starting a new feature for our patrons that's going to accompany this episode. This is going to be the first episode for which we will have some of Dave's follow-up files. Ooh. Going to be a nice little added value deal for patrons like Dylan Roth and Mark Masick. Make sure to check out the Hell Yeah Babies and the book Kaboom. Uh, but for our patrons who support us at patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W, it's going to be exactly what the name implies. It's going to be for some follow-up. You know when you listen to a really great podcast, you see a really interesting documentary or something on Netflix, and just kind of buzzing in your head for the rest of the week and you wish you could read or see or listen to more stuff like that? That's what the follow-up files is all about. It's about providing more context, about learning more, and about feeling smart, feeling good about yourself, feeling like you use your time well. You didn't just sit there on your phone clicking around. You actually did some purposeful research about a topic you really enjoyed. And that's what we're all about here at How Wrestling Explains the World. We're all about, you know, taking our hobby time where we like to watch wrestling and making it really purposeful and making it really thinky and feely and beautiful and fun. So if you're into thinky, feely, beautiful, fun wrestling type stuff, make sure to jaunt over to patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W, pledge at the $1 or $2 per month level, and get access to the new follow-up files series. If you have any questions about it, reach out to me on Twitter at DaveWritesJunk. Or ask either of our patrons, Dylan Roth or Mark Masick, about how freaking awesome it is after they check them out following this episode. The preceding announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. So that's why I'm excited, Nick. You're not excited to talk about the finger poke of doom? It's maybe the most interesting thing that's ever... It's not even interesting, actually. It wasn't even the most interesting thing that happened that night. It's such a failure of an idea for me. Because they could have done an interesting version of that, and they they didn't. They could have had Scott Hall and Kevin Ash be the two people involved. 
But they didn't. They decided to put the belt on Hogan, which is the most boring possible choice. Yeah, and, and to get back to something we said in the mystery episode, uh, it was like that fuck you for caring moment. Uh, the whole show had been kind of built around, at least to that point, like Ric Flair restoring Law & Order because the idea was that he had won control of WCW from Eric Bischoff at the end of 98, and this was him kind of like beginning the restoration of Law & Order and talking about how it was going to be, you know, wrestling the way it should be, etc., etc. And then at the end of the show, it's like, ah, fuck you for caring. It's going to be more bullshit than ever before. And the problem wasn't necessarily that they set you up to think one way and did another thing. It's that they just went so far with it. Like I said, it wasn't just like the bad guys win. It's like the bad guys win in the most ridiculous, insulting to wrestling way possible, which was what had been turning people off. Yeah, they stopped caring about what got them to where they were, which is that that was a decidedly uncool thing for the NWO to do. The NWO was cool. That's why it was over. It was a cool thing. It had cool people in it. Even when it had dwindled down in terms of like brand value or whatever, it still was cool. Like it was still cooler to be a part of the NWO than being part of WCW. And they were like, you know what, actually, we're not doing that anymore. I will qualify that by saying, with the exception of Goldberg, watching that show, there was so much like buzz for Goldberg in the Georgia Dome. And like, there's a part where they're, they're hosting a nitro party in one of the luxury booths. And they show this group of fans who have won the luxury box. And these aren't like families. These are like primarily dudes in their 30s and 40s. And they are losing their shit with like Goldberg signs and chanting and cheering for Goldberg. So it really blew my mind that as much as when we look back at that era, we think, oh, uh, NWO was so much more over than WCW. It really was, like, especially at that moment, Goldberg was was poised and, and was really positioned as something that actually was cool outside of the NWO. I mean, it didn't take them long from that point to ruin it, but I just wanted to throw it out there. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of the idea that, like, Roman Reigns is over, but there are there's such a strong anti-Roman Reigns can contingent that it feels like he's not and i think that's the same thing with w is i think there was a lot of wcw fans so when they actually had somebody to root for like a goldberg or a cool version of sting or just sting in general it was like awesome this is great but the nwo and this is what like you said the bad guys won this is what the problem was is the nwo was always going to win and they were going to win in the they had gone past, uh, gone round the bend in terms of giving you stupid endings to things so that they could end up pushing the storyline further for no reason other than to push the storyline further. There was like no narrative compulsion to the story. It was literally just like, how do we keep the NWO on top? Yeah, and you know what's interesting is I heard, there was maybe, I don't know, I want to say this was maybe two or three years ago, there was like this sudden defense movement. I don't know if someone said this in a shoot interview and a lot of sort of overeager fans, you know, decided to pile onto it. But uh, there was this narrative out there a couple of years ago that like the finger poke of doom wasn't that bad and that people actually kind of popped for it. And having watched it, like I said, just a couple of hours before we recorded this, that is definitely not the case. People were super hot at the idea of Nash and Hogan in the ring together, and they were really intrigued to see what would happen when those two actually fought each other. But the second they did the actual finger poke, it's like all the air is out of the room and people are pissed. Like even when Goldberg, who, like I said, super over comes down, people are still like throwing trash into the ring because they're so pissed at what went down. So it was a really damaging thing, but it kind of made me wonder, like, what did Hogan and Nash think in the ring in that moment? Like when they saw what what he like what tremendous anticipation they had for their face off, were they thinking like, oh, man, people are going to hate this because we're about to screw them. Or were they thinking, oh, we got them now, brother? You know what I mean? Like, it, it's so interesting. I think it's the latter. I think that's ultimately what the problem was. With Like, that was what was going wrong with WCW at that point, was the idea that, like, uh, it's a really cliche thing, especially to say about the NWO and WCW, but the inmates were running the asylum. Like, that is why you can't let the artist control what they're doing in the context of a larger show with a bunch of people involved. It was not the Hulk Hogan show. It was not the Kevin Nash show. It was WCW. 
even if it was NWO, that's still not a good storyline for the NWO. Like, there were a bunch of ways. Like I said, there were different people you could put in the match. There were different ways you could have done it. You could have had them do at least have the decency to do the, the Shawn Michaels Triple H uh, European Championship match where they at least, like, do moves before clearly, like, giving somebody else the title. And it's not the world title, it's the European Championship. And, like, yeah, that match was not great for the European Championship, but it was, like, not a game, like, a, a world-changing event. It was kind of like, these two assholes are being assholes, and nobody likes them because of it. I will say there was a kayfabe-shattering crisscross spot in that match. I'll never forgive them for that. <laughs> That's my favorite spot in the entire match. How'd you guess? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I really, I just find that the actual execution of the finger poke of doom match, and I'm saying that in air quotes, is the problem, not the finger poke of doom itself. That is an okay ending for a match where you actually did stuff for two minutes. Like they didn't even give you the like honor of like you paid money or you wanted to see this match. We're going to at least pretend like we're going to give you something, tease it out. It was like, oh, we teased it out for 10 seconds and then I poked him and he went down. You know, as I was watching it today, it really, really struck me that that whole finger poke of doom moment, it isn't just like bad wrestling, quote unquote. It isn't just a bunch of like carny wrestlers doing something lazy and burning the town out of like greed and, and to make sure that they maintain the proper power structure. Like it's not just that. It's also like a real technical failure when, when they're doing like the ring entrances and stuff, they have buffer and buffers doing like Kevin Nash's big long championship entrance. But as he's announcing Kevin Nash, Scott Hall is coming down the ring and being cheered to the entrance that Buffer thinks he is giving Kevin Nash. It's this really interesting moment in, in like where it's not just the finger poke of doom. It's not just the bad wrestling that's going on. There's these, there's these other hints like production wise that you see that like the seams are starting to show that the WCW is just ready to, to start falling apart. Like the ring announcer doesn't even know which guy the champion is. Why have Michael Buffer do the announcements? He clearly is like a mercenary coming into this and just killing whoever they need him to kill and then just leaving. He does not care about the product. And I don't mean that in a way that like, oh, he, did, he didn't pay his dues. I don't give a shit about people paying their dues. But if somebody is disinterested in being there, they don't need to be there. And you don't need to keep bringing them back. Because, like, that wasn't the first time Michael Buffer screwed up. And it's, again, because he doesn't care. But they were just like, he's a famous person. Let's use his voice. And I feel like that is what happened with... They went through it with wrestling, where they were just picking up every big name that they could whenever they became available, because they had the money to. And then they once they ran out of that, they were like, oh, let's pick up celebrities. And it was like, eventually you're just going to run out of shit, or you're going to make, like... David Arquette champion. Right, exactly. It's like you're saying, oh, I want a really, really good wrestling. I love wrestling. I love WCW. And they tell you like, oh, well, here's some celebrities. Look at this. Fuck you for caring. You know what I mean? It's another example of like, oh, you're, you, you, you as fans identify yourself as the fan base that believes in wrestling more so than the other company or the or the fan base that believes in real adult entertainment. Like, yeah, here's Jay Leno giving Hulk Hogan a diamond cutter. Like it was just... It wasn't that the finger poke of doom was the moment they suddenly started insulting the fans' intelligence, or it wasn't even, for me, I don't even necessarily know that it was the breaking point, because, I mean, they still had a pretty decent six months, like, immediately after that, you know what I mean? But I, I, but, but it, it, it's just a, um, that show in its entirety just shows or demonstrates so much of, of, of what was wrong with, with WCW, and so much of it was all these just different levels of fuck you for caring. Because they didn't know how to make you care. So they were just like, well, people don't need to care is almost what it felt like. Is like people don't really follow this shit. They don't really care. And it's like they don't I don't care if a storyline works out. I just won't give you another chance. That's all you want is for me to keep giving you a chance. But like, well, eventually you're going to just do too much stupid shit. And I'm just going to be like. No, I have seen you pull. I have seen you pull away the football enough times that I'm done. Like I don't want to play football anymore. I'm sorry. And just when Charlie Brown had finally had the football pulled away enough times, and he was done, you know, with it, and he wasn't going to fall for Lucy doing it again. 
they brought in Vince Russo to hold the football. <laughs> bro, bro, I'm not going to move the football. Bro. Charlie <laughs> Brown, come on, bro. <laughs> Oh, that was God. awful. I'm sorry. I can't. I can't do. I can't do voices or accents. Uh, uh, well, I'm from the area, so it's a lot easier. For me. I have a. I have a couple of friends who are very Long Island. Nail the accent every time. Like, oh, I have an uncle that sounds like that. So it, you don't want to learn this accent. It's not something you like should pick up as like on a lark. Uh, <laughs> he. We don't really talk about Vince Russo that much, considering how sincerely awful and damaging to a large part of the business he was. Like, he is really fucking terrible on a lot of different levels. He's one of, he's not one of the worst people in the history of wrestling. He's one of, like, the least good. I, You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think he's, like, a Jimmy Snuka type. But I also think he's like the worst of the people who aren't actively bad people. No, I know what you mean. He was definitely a very uh, destructive presence in wrestling. Like he is, he is low key the god of chaos, really. You know, in, in, in the in the in the uh, in the in the godhead of, of wrestling history. He did have that charming aspect of like ask talent about him, like ask Jeff Jarrett or D'Lo Brown. Like he was so good at making guys in the mid card are making everybody feel good and feel taken care of and feel kind of loved up. Like he always likes to brag that he had something for everybody. And that really did make a core group of wrestles very loyal to him that then helped him keep a job for TNA for like at TNA for like almost 10 years off and on. Right. So yeah, he, he definitely does have a charm, you know, and he does definitely ingratiate himself to people by, by, by making them feel like he's taking care of them, even though he, he isn't in maybe necessarily long-term the best person to be guiding your career. Like, I mean, look at, once again, look at Jeff Jarrett. We do talk a lot about Vince McMahon. And I think Vince McMahon and Vince Russo are actually a really good combination in the sense of they were, that is a successful wrestling show. Like I did not love a lot of the content, but some of the content was really great at the same time. Like he, with some sort of like, Governor, that's the word I'm looking for. He, with some sort of governor, is a totally serviceable to good wrestling writer who does actually have one specific gift, which is having giving everyone something to work with and making everyone feel like they matter. But outside of that, I think everything else is smoke and mirrors. Yeah, and I think that he was a great... He was a great cheerleader for legitimately talented people who needed a cheerleader and a sounding board. Like if you look at Steve Austin, if you look at like Dustin Rhodes, if you look at like, if you look at Brian Pillman towards the tail end of his life, like there were a lot of really, really talented guys who had a vision for taking themselves a little further and breaking out of the box a little bit. And he was definitely a gatekeeper who allowed them to do that in a wrestling business where a lot of the previous gatekeepers had shut them down. So I, I do respect Vince Russo on that level. Not that he created Austin, not that he created Goldust, I'm not, not that he created the Attitude Era, but that he was the cool teacher uh, at a time when, like I said, long-term, maybe it wasn't great, but, but having that cool teacher as the long-term sub for one semester, like that was actually good for the business, you know? Yeah, he... Is was a necessary evil in, and I don't even want to call him evil. Again, I don't think he's a bad guy. I think he's an asshole. I think those are two very different things. I think he was a really big asshole that got really in over his head and was required to do a lot of things that he just couldn't, including basically run a national wrestling show by himself for all intents and purposes. And I, you see during a lot of this, era of WCW, which is, is after the finger poke of doom and the fallout from it. It's, it is both a lot better than people make it out to be in terms of some of the ring work and way, way, way worse than you could ever imagine. Like there are just so many bad cliches from this it's almost like they took the worst parts of the pre-NWO Hogan run 
and attached them to like the worst parts of the Attitude Era. And we're just like, no, this will work. And it's like, they didn't work when they were happening the first time. Why would they work now? And then attached to that, the creative and production-wide fatigue from producing almost as much content back then in the late 90s as the WWE does weekly now. Yeah, with uh, not nearly as many people, not nearly as much actual like production talent and much like, worse communication technology oh my god yeah oh yeah you're not like they don't even they barely had the internet and like i mean they started to have the internet internet toy internet they started to have the internet uh, <laughs> uh they started to have the internet towards the end of that run in earnest in the way that we think about the modern incarnation of the internet where you could actually like stay online for more than 10 minutes. Um, And I think if you look at that, that part is not him just throwing shit at the wall and no one being like, Hey, why don't you fling less shit and, and like throw it in a specific direction is not necessarily his fault. He was just told to turn on, the turd hose, and he did. He was just like, cool, I'll just spray this shit at it everywhere, and whatever sticks, sticks, and we'll figure out the rest. And they're like, nothing stuck. Nothing stuck from that era at all that I can think of. Like, there's not a single thing from the Vince Russo era where you look back and you're like, wow, there's a really great thing he did. Let's all be proud of him. I think when Turner hired him and gave him the reins, I think they kind of thought they were hiring Eric Bischoff again in the sense that Eric Bischoff had been this kind of great hybrid of like, he had a background in wrestling, but he was a TV guy and he could be in executive meetings and that he really understood ratings and that he really kind of understood just generally the way the not necessarily the wrestling business, but the way the television broadcasting business was going. And I thought, I think they thought they were getting that again with Vince Russo, that they were getting this great kind of blend of, you know, wrestling experience and TV knowledge. And they were getting someone who didn't have that much knowledge in either realm. Like he, he was a good pitch man to some degree. And like I said, a good cheerleader to people who were super talented and he was good at coming up with lots of ideas when the roster was really big, but he was never that like classic, like, Dusty Rhodes or even Paul Heyman mind who, you know, had a main event program and then had a whole supporting card underneath it that that built anticipation for the main event and, and gave people other variety to enjoy. Like he was never a wrestling mind in that way. And he was never a TV mind in the way that like Jim Ross or Eric Bischoff was where, you know, he had made cold calls on the phone to television stations to sell them wrestling shows. Bischoff is, I think, underrated in a lot of ways in terms of he was actually a good television producer. I think even if you look at his TNA work, he he's actually innovative in terms of storytelling on wrestling television. The problem is, and I think it always has been, is he wants to be friends with the people that he's working with and he wants them to think he's cool. But like as an idea man, I think Eric Bischoff had a had a lot of gifts that we have a tendency to overlook because he's such a, a ne'er do well. I guess like we just kind of go, no, no, he's not. We don't like him in a way that like Vince Russo was talented, but his shittiness completely overpowers all of his like actual great work in a way that's like it makes more sense to me that you understand why people have i understand better why people think that vince russo and i personally agree with them is a very destructive part of wrestling history where i think eric bischoff was uh, somebody who went for the throne and failed yeah eric bischoff really pushed the business in a way that i think vince russo was part of the business during a push but i think that bischoff was one of the upstream causes of said push yeah he really knew what was going on how to compete with the wwe and i don't think his gimmick he likes to frame it this way but i don't think his gimmick was just like whatever the wwe is doing i'm going to do the opposite of it i think he actually had an idea but since he's a television producer that's how he frames it it's like whatever the other guy is doing, but it's like, no, you actually like found crew. You seem to have actually liked the idea of wrestling in a way that Vince Russo absolutely does not seem to like wrestling at all. 
I think that Eric Bischoff in the later years of WCW and the times that he had the reins again, I think that he was trying to get at something that was kind of similar to what we would now think of as like a cable reality show. Like I don't, I, you know, reality shows were still a pretty new thing on like networks or like real world had been around obviously for like almost a decade at the time, but still like the concept of the big reality show was, was still pretty new. And I think that he was starting to integrate some of those concepts. And, and when you watch uh, actual reality shows that are produced by, by Bischoff Hervey, you can tell that he's, he's a real master or he and the folks who work for him. I don't know how much like personal ownership he has over those projects, but very good at crafting stories that have just enough narrative to be interesting and feel just real enough to be credible. And I think that he was trying to do that with WCW from the NWO on, basically. That was kind of his goal, something that feels real enough to be credible, something that has a strong enough story to be entertaining. Whereas on the other hand, getting back to the image of Loki, I think that Vince Russo really was just more like, you, you break the fourth wall because you break the fourth wall. You do things because they haven't been done before. And the act of doing something that hasn't been done before is what's exciting. And of course, it's not hard to see where that philosophy is going to run up against the law of diminishing returns, you know, pretty quickly in comparison. Bischoff and TNA, like, did some really cool shit. I really, really liked the way that they produced backstage segments during that time, which was very, like... Um, I guess you'd call it like cin- cinema verite style filmmaking where it's kind of like the cameras were in weird positions and they were handheld in a way. They're obviously always handheld, but like the shots themselves are much more intimate. And I think it really, I don't want to say it like influenced Lucha Underground, but it opened up that as an idea of something that people were willing to watch in terms of how backstage stories were told. And it, it almost feeds back into like what they used to do when like Barry Windham had his hand broken in the car door. I think it was Barry Windham, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Like that kind of stuff where you're seeing somebody reporting something and then something happens in the back and you're like, Oh, what the hell's going on? And like the camera, the Tupelo concession stand brawl, like that style of, of realistic documentary filmmaking almost. Yeah. And once again, it feels like they're giving me money, but they're not. Uh, they did a bit a couple of months ago in MLW where it was uh, Jimmy Havoc was like, it was after a match, a very hard fought match. And they did a thing where they, they just made it seem like the camera was following him back to the locker room. Like they do the the loser shot in the fight, you know, the winner's in the ring with his arms over his head and the loser's kind of skulking back to the, to the locker room or whatever. They were doing that shot. And then all of a sudden as he's skulking back to the locker room, he, he bumps into, it was either Tom Lawler or Simon Gotch and they throw him out an exit door and start beating him up outside. But like it was this great like moment where they, uh, you know, they, they were just doing the kind of classic like here's the loser walking back to the, to, I think it was after he just lost a match, but here's the guy just walking back to the locker room, and then all of a sudden like oh this this jumping happened naturally. I can't stop talking about MLW, but it, it's also funny that you mentioned Lucha Underground because the first time I watched season one of Lucha Underground, I think it was the first Dario office scene. I remember thinking like oh that was lit really similarly to some of the Aces and Eights uh, sketches. <laughs> Having watched the last couple of pay-per-views in the history of WCW, I feel as though if Bischoff had one control of the company in a traditional sense, he could have actually made it successful because he had an eye for ta- he has a, an actual eye for talent, and he is a really great for wrestling television producer for that reality style of television. And it differentiates itself enough from the WWE style that I think it could have actually worked. Because if you watch the last couple of pay-per-views in the history of WCW, you are expecting these like dog shit pay-per-views where nobody can do anything and it's just unwatchable. And I'll tell you what, totally good pay-per-views, nothing super great. But like everybody's trying real hard and putting, it reminds me a lot of like the worst pay-per-view you would see in this era but in that era it was such a different style that it came off as way worse than it actually was does that make sense like yeah they they, they remind me of a primitive version of the current style 
Yeah, they remind me a little bit of like uh, some of those like 2005, 2006 era pay-per-views when you watch them now, the WWE ones, um, where like, you know, there's there's kind of a wide mid-card and really there's, there's some angles that are supposed to be personal, but really only the top angle actually feels very effectively personal. And there's a lot of try-hard wrestling going on, but nothing's really stellar. And I think try-hard in those dying days of WCW in those last months really really is the word because especially for the young talent, like there wasn't re- in spite of what we saw with things like the finger poke of doom down the stretch in the final months, people were not dogging it in WCW. Like you look at Booker, you look at Scott Steiner, you look at freaking three count. You know what I mean? Like you look at some of the smaller guys in the mid card and there were people going out there and busting ass and whether it was to get to the top in WCW in kind of the shallow pool, or whether it was because they knew that they were going down and that they were trying to feather the nest for the next next gig. Either way, people were really trying their hardest out there and really trying to show that even if they were in a company that wasn't as good or as competent as the WWF, that they as performers were just as confident as those, if not better themselves. Oh, they are Sugar Shane Helms is a fucking great worker. He like he has a match with Chavo that is sincerely just like a really great cruiserweight match. Like it no no smoke, just like really good word not like no caveats, just like a really great match between two really talented guys. And it's on the last pay-per-view in the history of WCW. It's it's not like a hidden gem. It's literally just like, yeah, I'd expect this match to be pretty good. And it it's really good. Like it's just one of those things where they had they always WCW always had talent because not everybody, especially at that time, could work the WWF slash WWE uh, the WWF. I think they were still the WWF uh, style because it's it, that at that time, especially, it was predicated so much on look that anybody didn't look like a WWE star just couldn't get on the show. They weren't going to get signed, and like Jericho. Like, Jericho's, it took a really long time for him to actually, like, reach his potential. A lot of people went to WWF and did well, but they didn't, they weren't doing, they were treated better, I would assume, uh, than they were in WCW because a lot of the mid-card to lower mid-card guys were treated like crap. But they were treated like important parts of the show, even though they weren't like it was really hard to move up the ranks. If you weren't a homegrown WWF guy. And I feel like that's another reason a lot of people stayed and you had a bunch of really talented, like Booker T is one of the best wrestlers of all time. He, especially young Booker, like WCW Booker T is so fucking good. Right. Dave? Oh yeah. I mean, I think that he's someone who, I mean, I don't mean to get into the wrestling dialogue of a decade ago and start talking about people burying people and holding them down, but I think that he was someone who had the potential to be one of the top one or two guys in the whole business, and then he hit something of a ceiling that maybe came from the perception, at least in part, of being a WCW guy, and I think that he, while he had a great run in the WWE, I don't think he ever really achieved his true potential because even he who was like as you say one of those talented guys in the whole world even he couldn't really shake the stink of having gone down with the ship yeah booker t had been building there to the point where he was where he ended up for a really long time but i'm pretty sure we've talked about this in previous episodes the he was doing shit in like 1995 that was the best shit on the show every single time he was as good a wrestler as has ever been per, like talent wise in terms of what he could do in the ring, the stories he could tell his look, his promos, like the total package, not Lex Luger, but like the actual total package. Like he was a five tool player. And the fact that the WWF didn't make him like an all time great. And just like a first ballot hall of famer type is kind of frustrating. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. And I'll also add that he was one of the last wrestlers, at least in my mind, to kind of come from that great tradition of wrestlers who you really felt like you saw quote unquote grow up in the business and their career went through 
a certain progression that really paced you and got you ready for them to be a top star. You saw him debut on TV as a tag wrestler and you know they were treated more or less as a unit, as kind of a true team where they were equals. But after you know six months, a year of watching Harlem Heat, you as the viewer, uh, whether hardcore, quote unquote, smart or whether casual, quote unquote, believer, you recognized that he was kind of the standout, both in terms of charisma and athleticism and everything else. And so you went on that little journey from him as just another guy in a tag team to, hey, he's a standout guy in a tag team. And hey, he's one of the great young stars in the business. And then you see him get spun out into singles and he gets, you know, he's television title level and then he's U.S. title level. And it just seemed that the progression of his career uh, and the progression of his age were just like perfectly paced together where he was on this road to become like I said, one of the top one, two, three people in the whole business. And then unfortunately, like I said, kind of hit the ceiling in the WWF and, and wasn't really quite the same ever. But I really think that he was kind of one of the last great guys who was groomed in the traditional way, you know, gradually upwards toward the main event. I think uh, the, the other guy, one of the other guys that you really saw that with was Scott Steiner, who was kind of the other side, the heel, the top heel in WCW when it ended. And I, I think that's one of the big reasons why I feel like they could have moved forward after, uh, without selling, if they had been able to keep the TV slot with a Booker T and a Scott Steiner as the main stars, because they were kind of free from the having to deal with the NWO stuff. They had a lot of talent in the mid card and they had these two guys who really could carry a few. Yeah. I mean, I think Scott Steiner was kind of that perfect analog for Booker. He really was the kind of uh, yin to Booker's yang, so to speak. Uh, definitely. He was kind of the dark side, the bizarro world and that he had come along on that kind of same classic wrestler path towards the main event. And I mean, he, he was visually like very much the opposite of Booker, a clear foil for Booker, uh, both literally like in skin tone, right? They're very clearly uh, opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, but also like Booker just had this great like lean, natural, athletic look, whereas Scott Steiner looked like superstar Billy Graham, you know, and, and Booker had his kind of naturally dark hair and Steiner had the bleached goatee. And, you know, uh, Booker Booker took stuff seriously and made it seem like the the matches in the ring really mattered to him. And all Steiner cared about were his freaks and his peaks. So they, they definitely were kind of natural, perfect rivals who'd kind of, you know, been been on the similar paths or, or paths that were always destined to intersect for many years. But I'll also say that if I was starting a uh, wrestling promotion or territory and I had a time machine, uh, I would be pretty hard pressed not to make Big Papa Pump Scott Steiner my my top heel in my time machine territory. And it's crazy because you have guys at the top of the card and you even have guys like Kiwi at the very bottom of the card who are like, oh, this guy's totally good. Like you could eventually have him get his ass kicked by, by Scott Steiner. He was that level of good. Like, and that's really hard to do. I know that sounds silly to have a guy who can just get his ass kicked by a champion in a non-title match but still look good doing it. Like they had a full roster plus stars to build around. But what you see is that the liability of what they'd done, all of the ways that they had got there, the ways that they had had, they had allowed um, Kevin Nash and, and Scott Hall and obviously Hulk, Hulk Hogan, Hollywood Hulk Hogan um, to completely control the, like, pilot the plane that like once it started in a certain level of nosedive nothing could get them out of it like there was no way they were going to be able to keep that going it just what it became financially irresponsible to the shareholders of like aol time warner to keep a wrestling show that had lost tens of millions of dollars a year before going. Yeah, and I think that, that they kind of ran up against a paradigm shift. Like, the failure of WCW couldn't have been timed worse. Like, they couldn't have been hitting their absolute nadir at a worse time for a show like that to be doing so. Like, when the internet was starting to rise and when 
cable was starting to fancy itself as a prestige arena, which it really hadn't been seen as in the past. It had been kind of seen as kind of body, you know, in most of the nineties, like the joke always used to be that like cable stuff was a little trashy and like now cables where all the prestige stuff is, you know, and, and, and I think that, Turner saw them as something that was an obstacle to being seen as a prestige family of networks and the timing of those people kind of looking down their nose at WCW and the bottom falling out both financially, creatively. It it just all really couldn't have happened at at a worse time. It really was like a, it, it, it takes a perfect storm to bring down a ship that's too big to sink. And and that perfect storm did happen and brought down a ship that so many people had assumed was, was too big to sink. And what I think the uh, less so WCW than the uh, than the rise of TNA basically shortly thereafter it collapsed shows the necessity of having competition for a company like WWE not necessarily in terms of competing with them in a traditional sense of like making as much money as they do, but competing with them for talent. And if you end up serving as a farm system for them at this point, it's almost, I guess that's what changes. Like WCW was the last chance anybody had to out NFL WWE. Does that make sense? Like they were the last insurgent league that could really mount a serious opposition to WWE and they just completely lost it on like the last couple. If they would have kept going and didn't start starting with a finger poke of doom and going through Russo and then not figuring out a different way to get on some other channel, what they gave, what they gave up for everyone in some, or they lost, I should say in some way was the ability for us to ever see a true competitor to the WWE. Yeah, definitely. I think that uh, to mix metaphors here, I'm using so many different analogies, uh, that WCW and WWE were in like a super tight Super Bowl and you know, they WCW was up three going into the fourth quarter, but then WWE scores a touchdown and then WCW has a three and out and then WCW kick or, and then WWF kicks a field goal and WCW throws an interception. And then the WWF scores another touchdown and WCW fumbles the ball. Like it's it, the death of WCW was like watching the end of a bad football game. But as you say, it's like they lost so bad that they just called off Super Bowls for the remainder of the future. They're like, you know what? We never want to see a shellacking that bad again. It was just too sad at the end. We're just not going to do a Super Bowl from now on. I mean, that's really what happened after the the Tacoma show, right? The uh, the, the Buff Bagwell and, uh, and Booker T Raw, where they did the main event with them to kind of test run the idea of doing a WWE versus WCW type thing that would culminate in some sort of super show. And they just said, no, 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 everybody hates this too much. It's too dead. It's too burned out. We're, we're not even going to bother trying to build to a super show with this concept anymore. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. And I think we actually didn't mention Buff Bagwell. I think he's like the... I don't know how to put this nicely. He is... It's funny, because I was going to say he's like the Lex Luger of in the way the new generation is, and you realize, oh. He, like, he is the thing that they tried to make work that worked only in WCW and in such a way that it hurt WCW that a guy like that would only work in WCW. Does that make sense? Well, Buff was a guy who was on that same track as Booker T and Scott Steiner, right? Where he was gradually brought along as a tag wrestler. He had a couple different partners, whether it was like Scorpio or the Patriot or whatever, but he was being brought along and being groomed for the top spot. And I guess if you look at that kind of triangle of guys, if you have uh, Booker T's one point of the triangle, Scott Steiner's another, and Buff Bagwell is the third point of the triangle, you understand why when they built the pyramid, it crumbled, you know, that it only had two two good sides of the triangle. And, and I guess that he represents like a lot of WCW's failings. He's a good embodiment in the sense that, you know, Buff looked like a wrestler, maybe more so than a lot of wrestlers who had much more talent than him. And Buff had like the, the, the style and the kind of charisma of a wrestler, maybe even more so than other people who were much more talented than him. But, like, Buff didn't 
have it. Like Buff was someone who was always, even though he checked all the boxes, he was always incomplete. And WCW only developed, or I shouldn't say only because we talked about Booker and Scott Steiner, but too frequently, too high a percentage of the guys they developed were guys who checked all those boxes, but at the end of the day really weren't saleable, marketable top stars in the way that Booker or even Steiner became. Like when you look at those last couple of months of nitros and pay-per-views, like I said, there's a lot of try-hard stuff, but you see a lot of those power plant guys and it's like, they look like wrestlers, they can take wrestler bumps and they can hit the ropes. But WCW was just bad at actually creating wrestling. There was like a verisimilitude of wrestling, but they never quite got there. And it's because they weren't creating a wrestling show as much as they were creating this weird meta story show, like this weird meta soap opera about a wrestling show with wrestling. Not like, not like glow where like you see clips, not that that's a soap opera, but like, that is a show where wrestling is a medium through which they tell certain stories where like wrestling itself is a thing that's told through wrestling and they just never figured out a way to tell the story that got you to the ring and kept you interested in the ring and then kept you interested in what happened after they left the ring. Exactly. They could always do one to two of those things, but they almost never hit all three. There was never the exciting build, the great match, and the satisfying follow-up. They so rarely got all of those three things together, especially in the Nitro era, honestly. They were so good at building anticipation, and they were so good at kind of sweeping... Uh, not great performances under the rug with good follow-through, but they were never able to get the great match, the good build, and the good follow-through because the guys who were having the good matches, they didn't have the storyline support to do the two other things. And if they and what would happen a lot with the follow-up is like when they had the right guys and they were doing the right things, Hogan would just be like, that doesn't work for me, brother. The best example of that is the thing, to which to me is the actual, like, finger poke of doom in a metaphorical sense for WCW, which is the bash at the beach. Is this your deal, Russo? Wow. That's why this company's in the damn shape it's in because of bullshit like this. Wow. My God, this is real life. One, two, three. And there you heard the uh, one, two, three of Hogan pinning Jarrett. And to me, and what's funny is that eventually leads to a totally decent match with Booker T, where Booker T gets the title. That, to me, is like the actual death of WCW. Is like that and the promo that Vince Russo cuts. Like, those two things are the actual, like, no, this, this shit's just over. Like, everyone has either stopped caring because they don't have a reason to care or because they never cared to begin with, and now it's not worth their time to pretend like they do. Yeah, I think throughout wrestling history, we've really seen that like the death of your title is the death of the company. And like in the AWA, it's like they have the whole thing with Hanson where like Hanson runs over the belt with the truck and mails it back to Vern. And like they have some good years, you know, with Martel and uh, Kurt Hennig afterwards, but the company's really never the same. Or like the NWA, you know, Flair goes to the WWF with the belt. And the NWA name is, is really never the same afterwards. And certainly that was a hit to, to WCW in its time as well. And then again, here we see that like starting with the finger poke of doom and then ending really at Bash of the Beach, we have this kind of like series of, of offenses against that, that WCW title. And I think that unfortunately, as you say, as good as Jarrett and Booker uh, were that night, because I think they really are two of the great match havers of the era, uh, as good as they were that night, they really couldn't, you know, that you can't undo... Uh, someone who is more famous than the sport taking the ball and going home with the title. And, and as much as Vince tried, Vince Russo tried to come out and kind of get, get the heat back from Hogan, so to speak, by, you know, cutting the whole bald son of a bitch promo on him. Uh, it, it, you know, it, the title was never the same. And as a result, I think that maybe from that moment forward, even though it limped along for a while longer, I think that was maybe when WCW was, perhaps beyond redemption once that had happened to the title. Yeah, because there's no coming back from pretending like 
wrestling is fake after pretending pretending like wrestling is fake. It's like you can do it once with the finger poke of doom. You can't do basically the same thing again. Works like both ways. You can't do the screw job twice. Like it just doesn't have the same effect. And when it's a negative thing, it actually just makes it way worse. It where with like it's a law of diminishing returns where it's like, oh, if you get like this certain sickness once, it's bad. If you get it again, you're going to die. Like it may you may not die from it, but you will eventually die because of it. Like, and that's what the second incident was. It was this like, no, seriously, there's no coming back from this. You can't meaningfully have value in a company that does stuff like this, no matter what you do, because people aren't paying to see you air your dirty laundry unless it's actual like dirty laundry. You purposely made dirty for the purposes of showing it to people. Like, <laughs> like that's what professional wrestling is. It's like, we don't want to deal with your actual real world shit unless you can give us a reason to think it's part of the show. Yeah. And you know, we, we talked earlier about kind of WCW 2000 and how there's all these great workers, all these guys really trying hard and try to make names for themselves, but there's this total lack of storyline support. And in a sense, it's like, I guess why bother? Because they totally told you at Bash at the Beach with Hogan and Jarrett and Booker and, and Vince Russo, they basically told you that none of the rules matter. None of the tropes of the genre, none of the structure of the whole thing matters worth a damn anyway. So going back to our conversation of a couple of minutes ago, sort of in light of what we just said, I guess it's like, well, of course they didn't have any stories for those guys because they'd already blown up the whole concept of wrestling storytelling. So like, what more was there to do other than send guys out there to do a bunch of really impressive stuff and, uh, you know, do whatever crap people wanted to do to entertain themselves in between? Yeah, that is the best way to describe what happened. This is something I was thinking about while we were recording this episode. Um, And in general, it's something I think about a lot. Given the fall of WCW... Uh, well, a couple people got picked up, not everybody, but a, a decent amount of people got picked up by WCW, those who were under contract with WCW and not uh, with Turner. So, like, Sting and a couple of other people were working or, or had contracts that made no sense for them to leave to work with w, uh, WWE slash WWE. Basically, basically anyone with a good contract. Yeah. But, like, Booker T is one of the people that went to WWE. And I guess my question from that is how much better off would professional wrestling and Booker T in particular be if Booker T had wait maybe even not even waited I, I don't know how you would do this maybe he goes to Japan for a little bit to have been the star around which TNA built Jeff Jarrett the Jeff like Jeff Jarrett character feuding against somebody like do you think that Booker T was a viable enough babyface star to work in TNA that TNA that in a way that would have actually made TNA enough of a big deal from the beginning to allow it to have a base where it didn't have to like live off of Panda Energy and then eventually be sold to 18 million different people and now be like a totally decent show that will never be the WWE. Not that it could have been necessarily at that point, but like it would have been better off than on like impact on pop. Sure. So I guess I have an answer and a qualifier and I'm going to start with the qualifier. Uh, For me, uh, the qualifier is that Jeff Jarrett in TNA, especially in the early years, always seemed really keenly aware that he and Booker and the whole concept of wrestling outside of the WWE had really lost something that night at Bash at the Beach. I mean, you saw, you know, the whole uh, Hogan angle that Jarrett shot in Japan, you know, where he he jumped Hogan, and I think Hogan got color and stuff to, to set up a rivalry. But I think Jarrett was always really canny to understand that his path to really, really getting to the top of the business, which, I mean, he never quite did, right? But his path to really, really get it, get into the top of the business went back through Hulk Hogan because Hogan had taken something from them by breaking the lineage of the title that they could never get back. A stink, like I said, Booker had the stink of going down with the ship. And I think Jarrett and Booker also had the stink of, 
you know, having been part of this, this break in the title lineage or having received a title that it didn't seem that either one of them really deserved in terms of the structure, the way that wrestling was always built. So I think had Booker gone to TNA, I think he would have struggled with the events of that night in the way that Jarrett's career suffered from, from a lack of legitimacy due to what happened that night. I think that by going to WWF, he actually gained a clean slate in that respect because they didn't care about that stuff at all. Vince is going to remake you into his own thing anyway. So it doesn't matter what abuses have been done to you in the past, as long as Vince hasn't specifically seen and cared about them. So that's my long qualification. Now, here's the real answer. <laughs> I think a company that was founded in 2002 centered around Booker, uh, maybe Booker as a top baby face, Jarrett as a top heel or part of a rotating cast of heels. Yeah, I think that could have been something really different, especially with the correct TV clearance where they were reaching um, a younger, more uh, diverse audience who was ready for something different in, in much the same way that like, you know, Lucha Underground and MLW have TV deals where like they're, they're not necessarily, I guess, great stations, but they're, they're good uh, they're good avenues for that kind of a product. So I think if you could have been platform bases. Like yeah. Yeah, certainly. Exactly. Cause like MLW has BN, which is, you know, has a lot of international sports contracts and they kind of build themselves as an international sports league. So like it works or Lucha Underground is on a, a channel that shows grindhouse movies all day. And they kind of fancy themselves as kind of a grindhouse kung fu type piece. So, so it really works. So if you had a company built around Booker and Jarrett with a really good uh, distribution model, then yeah, I think that could have been something really good. And I think maybe, I think Booker would have still wound up eventually in the WWE, but maybe he would have gone there uh, more in the way that Styles did, where he goes there later in his career and basically doesn't necessarily get dropped in right at the top, but gets dropped in two thirds of the way to the top. You know what I mean? I think he could have had a different, I think he could have had a different and in some ways better career, but I think he would have still ended up having the WWE career that he had. Yeah, I think that is the difference. I think he ends up being AJ Styles and not like pre-WrestleMania 30 Daniel Bryan mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where it's like you had a really great career but like you're definitely a Hall of Fame like I said you're definitely a Hall of Famer first ballot Hall of Famer one of the greats in the history of the business in terms of your total body of work but like not an all-time all like AJ Styles has real potential to be like a couple of time WW long held WWE champion like, there's a big difference between that and what Booker did. There just is. Like, AJ Styles AJ Styles is now, like, creeping up the list of, like, WWE's version of their all-time best performers. Does that make sense? Like, the people who are actually over the totality of their career great performers, but may have came to the WWF and aren't as great as they once were. But you're like, oh, no, but they were one of the best workers in the history of the WWF. And it's like, yeah, they were one of the best workers to work in the WWF, whether or not that was actually the pinnacle of their career. Sure. No, no, no. I think AJ Styles has had 10 times the WWF slash E career that, say, Ric Flair had. At least his original run in the 90s, not like his his post, you know, in not his 21st century run is kind of a nostalgic character. But I think, like, Styles' first WWE run is already... He's already a better WWE superstar than Ric Flair was. Yeah, and Ric Flair had did awesome shit, but so did AJ Styles. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, but definitely. like, yeah, exactly. He he's like a a great WWE character, not a great WWE storyline, which is basically what Ric Flair was. He was like one or two really good storylines, and then he came back as like Ric fucking Flair, basically, and that worked a lot better than him just being Ric Flair. And I think AJ Styles is like what Booker's career would have been. Plus you would have also got to see young AJ Styles versus young, like prime Booker T, which holy fucking shit, that would have been a good match. <laughs> like, like that's actually what he reminds me a little bit of is like the bigger version of AJ Styles in terms of that, like freakish athletic talent that almost feels like incongruous to the, 
the 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 performer themselves. We were just like, holy shit! You AJ Styles looks like an athlete. He does not look like a dude that can do a four fifty off of the the like jumping off of the rope. And like, hey, it's the shit that fucking Booker used to do, where it's just like, you're a huge person. How are you doing any of this? Yeah, it also it, it, it it's a testament to Booker that there was a phase in the WWE where everybody did the spin a Rooney with Booker. It's like everybody drinks a beer with Austin and then takes the stunner. There was like the phase of everybody does the spin a Rooney with Booker, including there's the footage after there of out there of a uh, after I think a SmackDown taping them getting Undertaker to do it. It, it was just a it was a whole famous thing at the time the, the spin a Rooney's, but like. It's a testament to Booker that nobody else ever did a spin rooney that was 1% as good as Booker's in the history of everybody doing the spin rooney with Booker. Like, he really did have something special and something that's undeniable when you when you go back and watch him, his, his work. Yeah, he's uh, he's one of the all-time greats, so I'm actually glad we got to spend an episode talking about how great he was in the context of how crappy WCW was at the end. But I actually, I think we've established what happened was crappy, but WCW was totally good for a lot of what they did but some of it was just fucking terrible like we didn't even talk about david arquette because like david arquette is such a likable character now in the in the annals of wrestling and it was so not his fault that it feels weird to dwell on that and i honestly honestly think it's way better than vince russo winning the championship or what happened at bash at the beach like i think out of those three that is by far the i think it's even better than the finger poke of doom I know you probably disagree, but I I think David Arquette winning the title the way that he did is better than Vince doing Vince Russo doing it. It's probably even better than Vince McMahon winning the WWF title. Like, yeah, I actually agree, and I think that, you know uh, I really enjoy the OSW review episodes where they cover the arc of the David Arquette title reign. I think those are some of the best work they've done in recent years. And thanks to those over the last couple of years, I've I've kind of come to appreciate and love David Arquette a little bit. In fact, the the promo in which he primarily says only "shut up." And what's up really is truly one of the great heel promos of all time. <laughs> is he all right? Sorry, Paige. I really am sorry. Canyon. Oh, damn, sorry. But you should know better than to trust someone from Hollywood. What's You know, when I was on the set of Ready to Rumble with Paige, I told him that I had a dream to be a wrestler. And he said, Shit! He said you'd get hurt, but guess what? You got hurt, Paige. Ah. I don't think he's had his medication. I got one thing to say to you. I was the heavyweight champion of the world! Thanks to my buddy, Eric Bishop, the king, EJE, baby. What an actor. So put that in your corn pipe and smoke it. What an actor, almost Gable-like in his delivery and a wonderful wife too. It's really good. He clearly feels like he could have been a professional and he does he's doing it now like he had this he didn't look like a professional wrestler but he acted like one and not in an acty way and like a no you're actually like a good shit heel like i i would want somebody to beat you up and i think you would enjoy taking the bumps i like the uh, bit i don't know who made this joke on twitter so if you listen to this show i apologize i'm not crediting you properly i think arquette missed an indie shot a couple of weeks ago and somebody made the joke on twitter well now he's a real pro wrestler because he no showed an indie shot <laughs> um oh speaking of no showing an indie shot uh time to announce next week's episode which will be uh in case you hadn't got a whiff of what we were talking about this episode uh we will be talking about enron um which is obviously the famous energy company that um burnt to the ground basically in the early uh, in the late 2001 post uh 9-11 because the stock market dropped and um yeah, it's one of the best stories of people liking the like smell of their own farts in the history of business. It's like a WCW level of like 
just chicanery, tomfoolery, unmitigated jackassery. It's like really a wonderful story of what happens when you like the smell of your own fart. Yeah, definitely. And I will insert this in uh, those follow-up file notes that I was talking about at the beginning of the show for our patrons. But before you listen to next week's episode, I definitely recommend that people check out the documentary, The Smartest Guys in the Room. I know it's it's based on a really great book that you've read, uh, but I've seen the documentary like five or six times. It's one of my very favorites ever. And um, I think it's kind of a great primer uh, that if, you, if you're interested in what we've talked about today and you're trying to figure out in your head, like, how are they going to connect this to Enron? Watch Smartest Guys in the Room. And that might kind of prime you for some of the conversation that Nick and I are going to have next week. I think you will, you'll see the connections. They are evident. Yeah. And I, I think the book in particular, if you have time at local library or just want to get the ebook, the book is legitimately my favorite non one of my probably my favorite nonfiction book of all time it is a legitimate page turner of a business story which i know sounds very silly but like it is some wild hair on fire shit that they do that is like so beyond the pale of both like sincere evilness and just wcw wcw level like just dumb shit it's it's kind of fun to you root for them to fail in a way that feels very pro wrestling if not if you get no other pro wrestling feelings from it like rooting for the people the heels and the story to lose is like it the the documentary is great the book if you have time is worth it even after you watch the documentary because there's a lot of stuff in the book that is just like really will completely blow your mind of just like how devious these people were. Did you have anything in particular to plug this week, Dave? Well, by the time this show drops, SummerSlam will have happened. So uh, there's no point in directing you towards any of the preview stuff that I have written. Uh, but as usual, uh, be sure to check out The Wrestling Estate. We're continuing to grow and expand and, and bring all these new perspectives to the table. It's, it's, it's a really exciting site to be a part of. So make sure, as always, you check out The Wrestling Estate. Uh, make sure you follow me on Twitter at Dave Writes Junk. Uh, and of course, be sure to direct yourself over to patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W uh, to get your hand on those follow-up files, notes that I was talking about just a second ago. Just by becoming one of our patrons for a dollar or two a month, you're helping cover our production costs, keeping us on the air, and uh, keeping the proverbial new pair of shoes on the proverbial baby. Uh, you can check me out at the Nickster. That's T-H-E-N-1-C-K-S-T-E-R. You can check us out at howwrestlingexplains.podbean.com, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, and the Google Play Store as well. Um, Don't forget to check out our YouTube. We will not be posting a video this week uh, for the YouTube channel. We will be posting one for Patreons. I will also be producing for the Enron episode. We'll be coming out with the next one on YouTube. Uh, which I'm actually really looking forward to. We're probably going to try a slightly different format. We will be recording the podcast. Uh, we're going to break kayfabe a little bit. We're going to be recording the podcast soon, uh, and I will be editing it, and we will listen to it and then realize what we missed, and we will do a follow-up on the shit that we probably should have mentioned during the episode. Uh, so get excited for Dave and I to wax nostalgic about a podcast that we recorded two days before and still haven't released. Are you excited for that, Dave? Weren't you just talking about people coming to love the smell of their own farts? All day long, I'm playing politics with Hulk Hogan because Hulk Hogan tonight wants to play his creative control card. And to Hulk Hogan, that meant that tonight in the middle of this ring, when he knew it was bullshit, he beats Jeff Jarrett. Well, guess what? Hogan got his wish. Hogan got his belt and he went the hell home. And I promise everybody or else I'll go in the goddamn grave. You will never see that piece of shit again. The poor, sad, despicable, oppressive, missing
formed Must be high for you to fight your tongue secure And the promise that you're right in every one